0: We're going to begin this morning um, a mini-series in 1 Peter. Where the whole series is 1 Peter, but we keep finding ourselves in a mini-series. And I'll explain to you why. I've had some conversations with uh, people who have come and been part of our worship or our regular attenders here over the course of the last months. And I get a sort of a, a common uh, concern. It's not a complaint, really, it's a concern. People say, Why am I having such trouble taking notes on your sermons? <laughs> couldn't you provide an outline or something that we could uh, hang our hats on I can't find your two or three points you just aren't clear about them and I, I appreciate that concern and I understand it and I'll tell you why um, each time I write a three part sermon it's too deep to preach in one week and so each week I preach only one point which is why you can't find three because there's only one. (laughs) And when I give you the title, that's it. (laughs) That's all we're dealing with. Uh, So if you've been... You have to listen to three sermons to get my three points, is what I'm saying. Um, And uh, we'll we'll get there. I'll work on the organization if you truly are suffering. But uh, we'll begin as I do. Uh, The title of this mini-series, which is one sermon I will preach in three parts, if, if that makes it clearer, is Embracing... A new word, maybe for some, kenosis. Embracing kenosis. Kenosis is a Greek word. It relates to hollowing something out, or emptying something out, or pouring something out. And it's a word that theologians typically use to describe what God did when He became flesh in the person of Jesus. Kenosis. The title of the series is Embracing Kenosis. This is point one, or part one, which would be point one of the sermon if we could be here all day for me to preach it. Quite some years ago, in 1948, in fact, uh, a pastor by the name of A.W. Tozer, I'd say his first name, but you wouldn't know him. He's known by the initials, it seems. He published a short little book entitled The Pursuit of God. Perhaps some here have... Heard of it? Maybe even others have read it. He published it in the wake of World War II, and its opening paragraphs, in my opinion anyway, continue to echo in the hallways and the recesses of the Christian church. In the opening paragraphs of the preface to the pursuit of God, Tozer wrote these words, In this hour of all but universal darkness, remember writing right after the end of World War II, In this hour of all but universal darkness, one cheering gleam appears. Within the fold of conservative Christianity, there are to be found increasing numbers of persons whose religious lives are marked by a growing hunger after God Himself. They're eager for spiritual realities and will not be put off with words, nor will they be content with correct interpretations of truth. They are a thirst for God, and they will not be satisfied till they have drunk deep at the fountain of living water. He goes on to explain that hunger throughout the preface, and they're interesting words. Now, I'm not sure I follow him all the way on how he thinks this hunger can be satisfied, but I resonate with the hunger. Now, of course, his concerns, his belief that the church was somehow losing its fire, that it was losing its heart, that it was somehow no longer meeting the hungering needs of its people, that concern was born out of two devastating world wars, which revealed the true heart of humanity. We thought, right, with our education and our advancements and the Industrial Revolution and our great ethical philosophies and all the other things we had done, that we had been close to perfecting society, that we had gotten the evil out of the heart of humanity and we were ready for a new era of, of prosperity and generosity of spirit and peace and harmony and all those things. Oh, you thought that was the 70s? No. <laughs> was the 1800s into the 1900s in Europe. But two world wars revealed that whatever we had done to polish ourselves up, the corrupted heart of humanity had remained the same. And those two wars revealed it. And Tozer lived through it. And he, well, not through both, probably in the same way, but certainly through the second, which was darker. And even more, Tozer was writing from a Christian tradition that had emphasized for many, many years right thinking over right living. To quite a degree. So I realize that many of us today might say, well, a lot has changed since Tozer's time. I mean, why are we reading a book from 1948? Why would you even quote it? Goodness sakes, that's archaic. I mean, many churches today are far less concerned with doctrine and truth claims than they once were. It's not like we're all head, right? I mean, it's possible today to worship in a church for years and years and never once attend a Sunday school class. Right? Right? Never once attend an intensive Bible study. Never once recite a creed. Never once discuss the Trinity. Never once explore the implications of Jesus as fully human and fully divine. Or come to appreciate the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. Or learn to distinguish between congregationalism and Episcopal forms of church government. Right? We can be in church a long time. You don't know what I'm talking about. Right? Well, I mean, if Tozer was railing against a Christianity that was all head and whole heart, I mean, and no heart at all, I mean, we've heard him, right? I mean, let's face it, we're all heart and no head! (laughs) And to Tozer's concerns that so many pastors were failing to emphasize practical Christianity and to administer the presence of God to their congregations, well, certainly we've heard him on those counts as well, right? I mean, after all, many churches today focus on social justice and care for the poor, and behaviors of love and compassion. And many, if not most, churches have become more concerned with encountering and experiencing God in the context of worship than was probably true in His day and His context. We do this by focusing on worship flow, on emotional experiences, and associating every feeling with the activity or inactivity of God. So, right? I mean, do we need His words? Have we heard Him? Here's what he wrote again. In this hour of all but universal darkness, one cheering gleam appears. Within the fold of conservative Christianity, there are to be found increasing numbers of persons whose religious lives are marked by a growing hunger after God himself. A hunger after God. Not necessarily a hunger for a more practical set of behaviors. Not necessarily a hunger after more engaging, inspiring, and emotional worship. Not necessarily a hunger for more charismatic and dynamic outworkings of the Holy Spirit, but a hunger after God. And I think for many, I can only speak for myself, I, I suppose, that hunger has remained largely unsatisfied by contemporary permutations of Christian life and worship. Funny that Tozer reveals it was no better when we were traditional The Christians to whom the Apostle Peter was writing in the New Testament epistle of 1 Peter, they were hungry too. They were hungry for a God that they were not able to grasp. And I don't mean grasp intellectually, but grasp physically. He just kept slipping through their fingers. The gospel that had been shared with them and their present life experience, they weren't coming together. And it would seem they were teetering on the edge of despair. Peter seems concerned they were even ready to walk away. For them, it was persecution that had caused their crisis, had at least precipitated it. And for Tozer, it was two world wars together with his experience of Christianity in the church in America. For those of us here today who hunger still, perhaps the hunger has been revealed by something else, maybe by the growing intolerance of Christian faith in the world, in our country particularly. Maybe by expressions of hypocrisy and hate by those who claim to be Christians. Or perhaps other things. I've shared with you before that it was my walk with cancer that revealed the hunger for me. And all that is to say that some here I imagine hunger too after God. Something real. Something true. A person and not an idea. We talked about that some months ago. Perhaps Peter's words to the Christian communities of Asia Minor will prove to be of help to those who hunger after God. I think they will. But it is a difficult text. Embracing Kenosis is the name of our series. And each of the three sermons in the series will explore a mystery that was revealed to us in Jesus, a mystery hidden throughout all of human history until the moment of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And today's mystery is this. The mystery of God's mission. And if you were taking notes, that would be point one. And that's all you'll get today. The mystery of God's mission. The mystery of God's mission. If you have access to a Bible, I'll invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter. The New Testament epistle of 1 Peter. Chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 10. But while you turn there... I want to prepare you for the way I'm breaking up this section of Peter's epistle. The series is actually going to cover chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 3. I'm going to read all of those verses each week so that they're always before us. But be prepared that for each point in the series, we're going to jump around a little in that context. And that, again, is Peter's fault. I blame him for a lot, but I think he owes this one. He likes to go back and forth. He likes to retrace the steps he's already walked. And so he bounces around, so we'll have to bounce around in order to cover a single idea. So we're going to do that today, but I'm going to read the whole passage first. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through Him you believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other... Love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's our passage. It's a lot there. The mystery of God's mission. The mystery of God's mission. There are two passages out of that larger context to which I'm going to pay special attention today. Verses 10-12. through In verses 17 to 21. Let's look at them again. You tired of me reading yet? Here we go. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Through Him you believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him, and so your faith and hope are in God. I won't read it again. Now, if you're a rabbit trail kind of person, if that's who you are, then these passages must feel a little like a field of clover. Don't they? Everywhere. Let's find some stories and examples of prophets who were seeking intently to uncover the mysteries of God, but they were thwarted at every end. Who is Peter thinking about? Where are these stories? Should we find them? And even angels long to look into these things? There's got to be a backstory to that. It must be quite adventuresome. Believe me, there's no end to the research that's been done and the opinions that have been proffered with respect to those kinds of questions. But in the end, pursuing them has proven to be quite unfruitful, sadly. I mean, after all, Peter's point is more or less straightforward. Something has been revealed in Jesus that has been hidden from the prophets of God throughout history. And this thing revealed in Jesus has even been hidden from angels, if you can believe that. That it's been revealed to us. What is it? It relates to the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And Peter described it best when he said that we were redeemed not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. What is it? Do you see it? Is it still hidden? I know. I didn't see it either until this week. That's why that's the first time that this passage threw me off and I hit the wall. A little commentary on First Peter by Douglas Herring opened my eyes and then everything began to fall in place. Here are two passages from that commentary that started to open my eyes. Maybe they'll be of help. He writes, What was revealed in anticipation to the prophets, however, had to be completed by the revelation of Jesus Christ in order for the Messianic community, the community who surrounded Jesus, to discern that the prophetic writings of Israel were serving the gospel and the church. The scriptures read according to the messianic pattern of crucifixion and resurrection constitute for the church the true description and analysis of our present world under messianic judgment. The interpretive lens through which time, history, personal, social, and political life are discerned in their truth. No? No. Yeah, I know. Let's see if I can illustrate what's at stake. I'm going to give you a series of numbers. You tell me what number comes next in the series. Can we do that? A little math? What if I said 2, 4? What's next? Oh, see, there we go. Everybody's thinking now. If I'm adding 2, then the next one would be 6, right? But if I'm multiplying by 2, then the next one would be 8. Or, if I'm multiplying each number by itself, 2 times 2 is 4, 4 times 4 is 16. The next one is 16. So, how am I going to know? How are you going to know what the next number is if I give you only 2 and 4? You can't. And that's the point. Everything that God has done throughout history that's been preserved for us by the prophets of Israel has been the beginning of a sequence. But we haven't been given enough information to know what's next. Two, four, and then what? And then Jesus. John O'Keefe and R.R. Reno in their book Sanctified Vision argue that this is precisely how the earliest fathers of the church understood Jesus. They write the following. Irenaeus is one of the first generation of leaders in the church after the death of the apostles. One of the first. For Irenaeus and the patristic tradition of the fathers Jesus Christ is more than an indispensable piece of data he embodies the formula of the series Jesus Christ is the logos of the father the logic or purpose in and through which the whole divine economy is conceived and implemented God's final and conclusive argument comes at the end pulling together the logic and purpose of everything that had been divinely ordained beforehand let me bring it together In other words, if the First Testament is 2, 4, then Jesus is the equation that tells us the meaning of the whole sequence. Jesus is the, we'll use algebra, x plus 2 that tells us that 6 is next, and then 8, and then 10. So what is it that Jesus reveals? Okay, we get the principle, okay? Everything was unclear. There was a sequence, but we didn't know how to understand it. Jesus came, he made sense of the whole thing, but how did he make sense of it? What did he tell us? Well, Jesus reveals the mystery of God's activity from the very beginning. He reveals the pattern of God's activity throughout history. He reveals where God is to be sought, where God is at work, where those who follow this God will have to go if they're to be His disciples. If we're hungry for God, Jesus tells us where we will find Him. Where is it? Well, Peter already told us. The sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow is the pattern. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb without blemish or defect. Crucifixion and resurrection is the pattern of God's activity. It's the mystery of God's mission. The way to God's future is the laying down of our lives for others. For our enemies, for those who persecute us. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And that pattern has been there from the beginning. But until Jesus, the prophets of Jesus couldn't understand fully what they were revealing. Go back to Genesis, when God created the universe. He created it as a chaotic sea of brooding waters, with no order and no form, shapeless, dark, void. Why? Why would he create the universe in that way? Why not just, if he's God and he can do anything in the world he wants, why not just create the universe from go exactly as he wanted it to be? Why create a brood of, a mass of brooding waters and darkness and deep and then only proceed to organize and order it afterwards? Seems strange. Well, that's just the way God did it. There's no way to know why until Jesus. Why give humanity a choice to disobey at all? Why create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and put it in that garden? Why create the serpent and allow him into that garden to tempt even Adam and lead them astray? Why? 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 That's just the way God did it. There's no way to know why, what it means, before Jesus. But now. Why rescue Noah from the judgment of God, even though after God rescues him, he says that every inclination of his heart was evil from childhood? Why rescue Abraham? Choose him, a nomad of nobody. He's in his 90s. He's past childbearing age. His wife has never been able to have children, let alone at 99. Why choose him to be the father of the next generation? It doesn't make any sense. Why deceitful, stubborn Jacob instead of athletic, burly Esau? Why pretentious, spoiled Joseph instead of powerful Judah? Why a self-conscious, exiled murderer in the person of Moses? You don't remember the story? why choose Israel's kings from the lines of Benjamin and Perez Benjamin, seriously, that tribe had just been almost wiped out because their, hot, their largest city had raped a woman to death and the rest of Israel came and wiped them out almost completely that's where King Saul's from you've got to be kidding me And Perez, seriously, David from the line of Judah? Perez was a consequence of Judah sleeping with his daughter-in-law who he mistook for a prostitute. That's the lineage of the Messiah? You've got to be joking. Why? Why would you do that? Why continue the kingly line by choosing a prostitute of Jericho named Rahab and an offspring of incest in the person of Ruth? Why continue it further through Solomon, a son whose parents first got together in an adulterous affair? What is this God doing? Is this a joke? Why use the sinful Assyrians to punish Israel for their sins? Why use the even more godless Babylonians to punish Judah for their sins? Some of you are realizing right now you've got to read your Bible a little bit more. (laughs) What are you talking about? Yeah, it's all there. Why, 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 why? prophets didn't know why that's just how God did it I mean there were reasons for being punished and they revealed those reasons but why this pattern why this way that's the question Habakkuk asked of God and God said to him I'm not going to tell you but then Jesus came and he made sense of that pattern God has been crucifying himself and bringing things back from the dead from the very beginning Every one of these decisions were preparatory steps for Jesus. In Jesus, the pattern finds its logic. In Jesus, God emptied himself of his glory and majesty and transcendence, kenosis. He entered the womb of a poor Israelite woman. He submitted himself to the human side of the covenant of Sinai. He submitted himself to the rules and regulations of first century Judaism. He handed himself over to human authorities. He allowed himself to be horribly beaten and eventually crucified by human hands. And he died as a consequence of a human command. And then from that deep darkness and the finality of death, he rose from the dead. God brought life from death in Jesus, joy from suffering, wealth from poverty. A king from Nazareth, which might as well be saying a king from nowhere, because that's where Nazareth was. It's officially there on the map. Nowhere. Nazareth, the capital city. A king from nowhere. And God in the form of a servant. The mission of God is reversal. Strength comes from weakness. Glory comes from shame. Wholeness from brokenness. And life from death. And that pattern revealed the meaning of all the rest. God brings order from chaos. Go back to Genesis. God brings light from darkness. God enters into the darkest of moments and He redeems them by bringing the most unimaginable goodness out of the most impenetrable evil. Wherever there is pain and suffering, chaos and confusion, darkness and despair, hopelessness and sin, there we will find God at work. Not causing those things, redeeming them. Jesus has revealed the economy of God's salvation, the mystery of God's mission in the world. God is at work transforming ugliness into beauty, recasting flawed and broken vessels into eternal works of art. In short, God has always been and will always be at work bringing life from lifelessness. That's creation, right? He spoke into the nothing and life came from it. He's been doing it ever since. He's been resurrecting the dead. That's what He's doing in us. That's what He has done in us. That's what He's doing in others. And that's where we're likely to encounter Him in the world. You ever wonder why missionaries seem to have so many dynamic stories of God doing unbelievably miraculous things on the front lines, especially when the gospel is breaking into a new world area? That's where God is. Peter's audience was suffering, and they were beginning to despair that perhaps the gospel was not true. What Peter reminded them was that the darker the moment gets for the church, the more present and at work God will be. If we want to follow a God who has been finally and ultimately revealed in the person of Jesus, our Messiah, then we must embrace the great reversal that Jesus reveals is the way to God's transformation of everything. The first shall be last. And the last will be first. The humble will be lifted up. The proud will be brought down low. Glory comes through sacrifice. Salvation comes through forgiveness. Justice is accomplished through mercy. The weak fight for themselves. The strong lay down their lives for others. Eternal life comes out of death. Jesus reveals that God will not be found or encountered in the halls of the powerful, or amidst the possessions of the successful, or in the hearts of the arrogant and self-righteous. We will not find Him there. We'll encounter God where there is death and decay, where there is suffering and pain. To encounter God, we must join Him in His mission in the world, and God's mission is crucifixion and resurrection, self-sacrifice and life from nothing. We come together here to worship God, to celebrate what He's done for us, to encourage one another, and to grow in the knowledge and practice of Christlikeness. And it's good that we do that. In fact, the Word of God commands us to gather just as we are this morning. And one day we will encounter God in the happiest of moments, in the comforts of an easy conversation on a cool, refreshing day. That's the joy set before us. But if the disciples were hoping that when God in the flesh was hanging out with them, which they probably couldn't have anticipated, but if that's what they knew Jesus was, and they were hoping for those kinds of moments, they were sadly mistaken, because Jesus kept going where no one wanted Him to go. And no one wanted Him to be. Here in this place, if we want to encounter God, then we have to follow Jesus to the tax collectors, and to the sinners, to the unclean, to the infirm, to the demon-possessed. Wasn't that risky? Yeah, it cost him his life. But this is the pattern of God's activity. It's the mystery of God's mission in the world. We are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and with all our souls and with all our strength. And we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. But well, who's our neighbor? To paraphrase Jesus, start with your enemies, and then we'll go from there. Don't get me wrong. Those who are responsible for the darkness will answer to God. The Scripture is clear on that. And it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But to those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. If we're really hungry after God, we'll meet Him there, in the land of the shadow of death, where the light is dawning. In some ways, it's the reason that I have chosen to go on this mission trip to an area of South Africa where the gospel hasn't been in some time. I'm convinced that those are the places where God is. But I don't have to go there to discover the darkness here either. But God is at work transforming lifelessness into life, ugliness into beauty, darkness into light. Perhaps we haven't encountered Him because we're not going where He is. Let's follow Jesus to the tax collectors and sinners, to the unclean and the infirm and the demon-possessed. For those of us who want justice, let's extend mercy. To those of us who want wealth, let's give away what we have. To those of us who want to be first and exalted, let's give up everything we have and be the last and the servant of all. This is the gospel. It's the pattern of what God has done from the very beginning and dawn of creation till now. And Jesus shows us that He has no intention of changing that pattern until this world is no more. If we want to join Him, we have to join Him in what He's doing. He will not cowtail to what we want Him to do. He's at work in this world, in the same way He has always been. Those who love Him will follow Him where He goes. Let's join Him there, in the land of the shadow of death, where a light is dawning. Let's pray.